This is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. This is the first of two parts of chapter four, which is entitled The Cruel Hand. A heavy and cruel hand has been laid upon us. As a people, we feel ourselves to be not only deeply injured, but grossly misunderstood. Our white countrymen do not know us. They are strangers to our character, ignorant of our capacity, oblivious to our history and progress, and are misinformed as to the principles and ideas that control and guide us as a people. The great mass of American citizens estimates us as being a characterless and purposeless people, and hence we hold up our heads, if at all, against the withering influence of a nation's scorn and contempt. Frederick Douglass, in a statement on behalf of delegates to the National Colored Convention held in Rochester, New York, in July 1853. When Frederick Douglass and the other delegates of the National Colored Convention converged in Rochester, New York, in the summer of 1853 to discuss the conditions, status, and future of coloreds, as they were called then, they decried the stigma of race, the condemnation and scorn heaped upon them for no reason other than the color of their skin. Most of the delegates were freed slaves, though the younger ones may have been born free. Northern emancipation was complete, but freedom remained elusive. Blacks were finally free from formal control of their owners, but they were not full citizens. They could not vote, they were subject to legal discrimination, and at any moment, southern plantation owners could capture them on the street and whisk them back to slavery. Although northern slavery had been abolished, every black person was still presumed a slave by law and could not testify or introduce evidence in court. Thus, if a southern plantation owner said you were a slave, you were, unless a white person interceded in a court of law on your behalf and testified that you were rightfully free. Slavery may have died, but for thousands of blacks, the badge of slavery lived on. Today, a criminal freed from prison has scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a freed slave or black person living free in Mississippi at the height of Jim Crow. Those released from prison or on parole can be stopped and searched by the police for any reason, or no reason at all, and returned to prison for most minor infractions, such as failing to attend a meeting with a parole officer. Even when released from the system's formal control, the stigma of criminality lingers. Police supervision, monitoring, and harassment are facts of life, not only for all those labeled criminals, but for all those who look like criminals. Lynch mobs may be long gone, but the threat of police violence is ever-present. A wrong move or sudden gesture could mean massive retaliation by the police. A wallet could be mistaken for a gun. The whites-only signs may be gone, but new signs have gone up. Notices placed in job applications, rental agreements, loan applications, forms for welfare benefits, school applications, and petitions for licenses, informing the general public that felons are not wanted here. A criminal record today authorizes precisely the forms of discrimination we supposedly left behind, discrimination in employment, housing, education, public benefits, and jury service. Those labeled criminals can even be the denied the right to vote. Criminals, it turns out, are the one social group in America we have permission to hate. In colorblind America, criminals are the new whipping boys. They're entitled to no respect and little moral concern. Like the coloreds in the years following emancipation, criminals today are deemed characterless and purposeless, deserving our collective scorn and contempt. When we say someone, ha someone was treated like a criminal, what we mean to say is that he or she was treated as less than human, like a shameful creature. 
Hundreds of years ago, our nation put those considered less than humans in shackles. Less than 100 years ago, we relegated them to the other side of town. Today, we put them in cages. Once released, they find that a heavy and cruel hand has been laid upon them. Brave New World One might imagine that a criminal defendant, when brought before the judge, or when meeting with his attorney for the first time, would be told of the consequences of a guilty plea or conviction. He would be told that, if he pleads guilty to a felony, he will be deemed unfit for jury service, and automatically excluded from juries for the rest of his life. He would also be told that he could be denied the right to vote. In a country that preaches the virtues of democracy, one could reasonably assume that being stripped of basic political rights would be treated by judges and court personnel as a serious matter indeed. Not so. When a defendant pleads guilty to a minor drug offense, nobody will likely tell him that he may be permanently forfeiting his right to vote, as well as his right to serve on a jury, two of the most fundamental rights in any modern democracy. He will also be told little or nothing about the parallel universe he's about to enter, one that promises a form of punishment that is often more difficult to bear than prison time. A lifetime of shame, contempt, scorn, and exclusion. In this hidden world, discrimination is perfectly legal. As Jeremy Travis has observed, in this brave new world, punishment for the original offense is no longer enough. One's debt to society is never paid. Other commentators liken the prison label to the Mark of Cain and characterize the perpetual nature of the sanction as internal exile. Myriad laws, rules, and regulations operate to discriminate against ex-offenders and effectively prevent their reintegration into the mainstream society and economy. These restrictions amount to a form of civic death and send the unequivocal message that they are no longer part of us. Once labeled a felon, the badge of inferiority remains with you for the rest of your life, relegating you to a permanent second-class status. Consider, for example, the harsh reality facing a first-time offender who pleads guilty to felony possession of marijuana. Even if the defendant manages to avoid prison time by accepting a generous plea deal, he may discover that the punishment that awaits him outside the courthouse doors is far more severe and debilitating than what he might have encountered in prison. A task force of the American Bar Association described the bleak reality facing petty drug offenders this way. The offender may be sentenced to a term of probation, community service, and court costs, unbeknownst to this offender and perhaps any other actor in the sentencing process. As a result of his conviction, he may be ineligible for federally, federally funded health and welfare benefits, food stamps, public housing, and federal educational assistance. His driver's license may be automatically suspended, and he may no longer qualify for certain employment and professional licenses. If he's convicted of another crime, he may be subject to imprisonment as a repeat offender. He will not be permitted to enlist in the military or possess a firearm or obtain a federal security clearance. If a citizen, he may lose the right to vote. If not, he becomes immediately deportable. Despite the brutal, debilitating impact of these collateral consequences on ex-offenders' lives, courts have generally declined to find that such sanctions are actually punishment for cons constitutional purposes. As a result, Judges are not required to inform criminal defendants of some of the most important rights they're forfeiting when they plead guilty to a felony. In fact, judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys may not even be aware of the full range of collateral consequences for a felony conviction. Yet these civil penalties, although not considered punishment by our courts, often make it virtually impossible for ex-offenders to integrate into the mainstream society and economy upon release. 
Far from collateral, these sanctions can be the most damaging and painful aspect of a criminal conviction. Collectively, these sanctions send a strong message that, now that you've been labeled, you're no longer wanted. You are no longer part of us, the deserving. Unable to drive, get a job, find housing, or even qualify for public benefits, many ex-offenders lose their children, their dignity, and eventually their freedom, landing back in jail after failing to play by rules that seem hopelessly stacked against them. The churning of African Americans in and out of prisons today is hardly surprising, given the strong message that is sent to them that they are not wanted in mainstream society. In Frederick Douglass's words, Men are so constituted that they derive their conviction of their own possibilities largely from the estimate formed of them by others. If nothing is expected of a people, that people will find it difficult to contradict that expectation. More than a hundred years later, a similar argument was made by an ex-offender, contemplating her eventual release into a society that had constructed a brand new legal regime based to keep her locked out 50 years after the demise of Jim Crow. Right now I'm in prison, she said. Like, society kicked me out. They're like, okay, the criminal element, we don't want them in society, we're going to put them in prisons. Okay, but once I get out, then what do you do? What do you do with all these millions of people that have been in prison and been released? I mean, do you accept them back, or do you keep them as outcasts? And if you keep them as outcasts, how do you expect them to act? Remarkably, the overwhelming majority of ex-offenders struggle mightily to play by the rules and to succeed in a society seemingly hell-bent on excluding them like their forebears, they do their best to survive, even thrive, against all odds. No place like home. The first question on the minds of many released prisoners as they take their first steps outside the prison gates is where they will sleep that night. Some prisoners have families eagerly awaiting them, families who are willing to let their newly released relatives sleep on the couch, floor, or extra bed indefinitely. Most, however, desperately need to find a place to live, if not immediately, at least soon. After several days, weeks, or months of sleeping in your aunt's basement or on a friend's couch, a time comes when you're expected to fend for yourself. Figuring out how exactly to do that is no easy task, however, when your felony record operates to bar you from any public housing assistance. As one young man with a felony conviction explained in exasperation, I asked for an application for Section 8. They asked me if I had a felony. I said yes. They said, well then, this application isn't for you. This young man had just hit his first brick wall coming out of prison. Anyone convicted of a felony, any felony, is automatically ineligible for public housing assistance for at least five years. Even after the five-year period has expired, those labeled criminals face a lifetime of discrimination in public and private housing markets. Housing discrimination against former felons as well as suspected criminals is perfectly legal. During Jim Crow, it was legal to deny housing on the basis of race through restricted covenants and other exclusionary practices. Today, discrimination against felons, criminal suspects, and their families is routine among public and private landlords alike. Rather than racially restrictive covenants, we have restrictive lease agreements, barring the new undesirables. The Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988, passed by Congress as part of the War on Drugs, called for strict lease enforcement and eviction of public housing tenants who engage in criminal activity. The act granted public housing agencies the authority to use leases to evict any tenant, household member, or guest engaged in any criminal activity on or near public housing premises. 
1996, President Clinton, in an effort to bolster his tough-on-crime credentials, declared that public housing agencies should exercise no discretion when a tenant or guest engages in criminal activity, particularly if it is drug-related. In his 1996 State of the Union address, he proposed one-strike-in-your-out legislation, which strengthened eviction rules and strongly urged that drug offenders be automatically excluded from public housing based on their criminal records. He later declared, If you break the law, you no longer have a home in public housing. One-strike-in-your-out. That should be the law everywhere in America. In its final form, the Act, together with the Quality Housing and Work Responsibility Act of 1998, not only authorized public housing agencies to exclude automatically and evict drug offenders and other felons, it also allowed agencies to bar applicants believed to be using illegal drugs or abusing alcohol, whether or not they had been convicted of a crime. These decisions can be appealed, but appeals are rarely successful without an attorney, a luxury most public housing applicants cannot afford. In response to the new legislation and prodding by President Clinton, the Housing and Urban Development Department, HUD, developed guidelines to press public housing agencies to evict drug dealers and other criminals and screen tenants for criminal records. HUD's One Strike Guide calls on housing agencies to take full advantage of their authority to use stringent screening and eviction procedures. It also encourages housing authorities not only to screen all applicants' criminal records, but to develop their own exclusion criteria. The guide notes that agency ratings and funding are tied to whether they are adopting and implementing effective applicant screening, a clear signal that agencies may be penalized for not cleaning house. Throughout the United States, public housing agencies have adopted exclusionary policies that deny eligibility to applicants even with the most minor criminal backgrounds. The crackdown inspired by the war on drugs has resulted in unprecedented punitiveness, denying poor people access to public housing for virtually any crime. Just about any offense will do, even if it bears scant relation to the likelihood the applicant will be a good tenant. The consequences for real families can be devastating. Without housing, people can lose their children. Take, for example, the 42-year-old African-American man who applied for public housing for himself and his three children, who were living with him at the time. He was denied because of an earlier drug possession charge for which he had pleaded guilty and served 30 days in jail. Of course... The odds that he would have been convicted of drug possession would have been extremely low if he were white. But as an African-American, he was not only targeted by the drug war, but then denied access to housing because of his conviction. Since being denied housing, he had lost custody of his children and is homeless. Many nights, he sleeps outside on the streets. Stiff punishment indeed for a minor drug offense, especially for his children, who are innocent of any crime. Remarkably, under the current law, an actual conviction or finding of a formal violation is not necessary to trigger exclusion. Public housing officials are free to reject applicants simply on the basis of arrests, regardless of whether they result in convictions or fines. Because African Americans and Latinos are targeted by police in the war on drugs, it is far more likely that they will be arrested for minor nonviolent crimes. Accordingly, HUD policies excluding people from housing assistance based on arrests as well as convictions guarantee highly discriminatory results. Perhaps no aspect of the HUD regulatory regime has been as controversial, however, as the no-fault clause contained in every public housing lease. Public housing tenants are required to do far more than simply pay their rent on time, keep the noise down, and make sure their homes are kept in good condition. 
the one-strike-and-you're-out policy requires every public housing lease to stipulate that if the tenant or any member of the tenant's household or any guest of the tenant engages in any drug-related or other criminal activity on or off the premises, the tenancy will be terminated. Prior to the adoption of this policy, it was generally understood that a tenant could not be evicted unless he or she had some knowledge of the participation in alleged criminal activity. Accordingly, in Rucker v. Davis, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down the no-fault clause on the ground that the eviction of innocent tenants who were not accused or even aware of the alleged criminal activity was inconsistent with the legislative scheme. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed. The court ruled in 2002 that under federal law, public housing tenants can be evicted regardless of whether they had knowledge of or participated in alleged criminal activity. According to the court, William Lee and Barbara Hill were rightfully evicted after their grandsons were charged with smoking marijuana in a parking lot near their apartments. Herman Walker was properly evicted as well after police found cocaine on his caregiver. And Pearly Rucker was rightly evicted following the arrest of her daughter for possession of cocaine a few blocks from home. The court ruled these tenants could be held civilly liable for the nonviolent behavior of their children and caregivers. They could be tossed out of public housing due to no fault of their own. In the abstract, policies barring or evicting people who are somehow associated with criminal activity may seem like a reasonable approach to dealing with crime in public housing particularly when crime has gotten out of control. Desperate times call for desperate measures, it is often said. The problem, however, is twofold. These vulnerable families have nowhere to go, and the impact is inevitably discriminatory. People who are not poor and who are not dependent upon public assistance for housing need not fear that if their son, daughter, caregiver, or relative is caught with some marijuana at school or shoplifts from a drugstore, they will find themselves suddenly evicted, homeless. But countless poor people, particularly racial minorities who disproportionately rely on public assistance, that possibility looms large. As a result, many families are reluctant to allow their relatives, particularly those who are recently released from prison, to stay with them, even temporarily. No one knows exactly how many people are excluded from public housing because of criminal records, or even the number of people with criminal records who would be ineligible if they applied. There's no national data available. We do know, however, that there are several million ex-felons in the United States, and that under existing rules, everyone convicted of a felony is automatically ineligible for a minimum of five years. We also know that there are tens of millions of Americans who have been arrested but never convicted of any offense, or convicted only of minor misdemeanors, and they too are routinely excluded from public housing. What happens to these people denied housing assistance or evicted from their homes? Where do they go? Thousands of them become homeless. A study conducted by the McCormick Institute of Public Affairs found that nearly a quarter of guests in homeless shelters had been incarcerated within the previous year, people who were unable to find somewhere to live after release from prison walls. Prisoners returning home are typically the poorest of the poor, lacking the ability to pay for private housing and routinely denied public housing assistance, the type of assistance which could provide some much-needed stability in their lives. For them, going home is a mere figure of speech more than a realistic option. More than half a million people are released from prison each year, and for many, finding a new home appears next to impossible, not just in the short term, but for the rest of their lives. 
As 41-year-old African-American mother remarked after being denied housing because of a single arrest four years prior to her application, I'm trying to do the right thing. I deserve a chance. Even if I was the worst criminal, I deserve a chance. Everybody deserves a chance. Boxed in. Aside from figuring out where to sleep, nothing is more worrisome for people living in prison than figuring out where to work. In fact, a study by the Vera Institute found that during the first month after release from prison, people consistently were more preoccupied with finding work than anything else. Some of the pressure to find work comes directly from the criminal justice system. According to one survey of state parole agencies, 40 of the 51 jurisdictions surveyed, the 50 states in the District of Columbia, required parolees to maintain gainful employment. Failure to do so could mean more prison time. Even beyond the need to comply with the conditions of parole, employment satisfies a more basic human need, the fundamental need to be self-sufficient, to contribute, to support one's family, and to add value to society at large. Finding a job allows a person to establish a positive role in the community, to develop healthy self-image, and to keep a distance from negative influences and opportunities for illegal behavior. Work is deemed so fundamental to human existence in many countries around the world that it is regarded as a basic human right. Deprivation of work, particularly among men, is strongly associated with depression and violence. Landing a job after release from prison is no small feat. I've watched the discrimination and experienced it firsthand when you have to check the box, says Susan Burton, an ex-offender who found a business aimed at providing who founded a business aimed at providing formerly incarcerated women the support necessary to reestablish themselves in the workforce. The box she refers to is the question on job applications in which applicants were asked to check yes or no if they have ever been convicted of a crime. It's not only on job applications, Burton explains. It's on housing. It's on school application. It's on welfare applications. It's everywhere you turn. Nearly every state allows private employers to discriminate on the basis of past criminal convictions. In fact, employers in most states can deny jobs to people who are arrested but never convicted of any crime. Only 10 states prohibit all employers and licensing agencies from considering arrests, and three states prohibit some employers and occupational and licensing agencies from doing so. Employers in a growing number of professions are barred by state licensing agencies from hiring people with a wide range of criminal convictions, even convictions unrelated to the job or license sought. The result of these discriminatory laws is that virtually every job application, whether for dog catcher, bus driver, Burger King cashier, or accountant, asks ex-offenders to check the box. Most ex-offenders have difficulty even getting an interview after they have checked the box, because most employers are unwilling to consider hiring a self-identified criminal. One survey showed that although 90% of employers say they are willing to consider filling their most recent job vacancy with a welfare recipient, only 40% are willing to consider doing so with an ex-offender. Similarly, a 2002 survey of 122 California employers revealed that although most employers would consider hiring someone convicted of a misdemeanor offense, the numbers dropped dramatically for those convicted of felonies. Less than a quarter of employers were willing to consider hiring someone convicted of a drug-related felony. The number plummeted to 7% for a property-related felony, and less than 1% for a violent felony. Even those who hope to be self-employed, for example as a barber, a manicurist, gardener, counselor, may discover that they are denied professional licenses on the grounds of past arrests or convictions, 
even if their offenses have nothing at all to do with their ability to perform well in their chosen profession. For most people coming out of prison, a criminal conviction adds to their already problematic profile. About 70% of offenders and ex-offenders are high school dropouts, and according to at least one study, about half are functionally illiterate. Many offenders are tracked for prison at early ages, labeled as criminals in their teen years, and then shuttled from their decrepit, underfunded inner-city schools to brand-new high-tech prisons. The communities and schools from which they came failed to prepare them for the workforce, and once they've been labeled criminals, their job prospects are forever bleak. Adding to their troubles is the spatial mismatch between their residence and employment opportunities. Willingness to hire ex-offenders is greatest in construction or manufacturing, industries that require little customer contact, and weakest in retail trade and other service sector businesses. Manufacturing jobs, however, have all but disappeared from the urban core during the past 30 years. Not long ago, young, unskilled men could find decent, well-paying jobs at large factories in most major northern cities. Today, due to globalization and deindustrialization, that's no longer the case. Jobs can be found in the suburbs, mostly service sector jobs, but employment for unskilled men with criminal convictions, while difficult to find anywhere, is especially hard to find close to home. An ex-offender whose driver's license has been suspended or who does not have access to a car often faces nearly insurmountable barriers to finding employment. Driving to the suburbs to pick up and drop off applications, attend interviews, and pursue employment leads may be perfectly feasible if you have a driver's license and access to a vehicle, but attempting to do so by bus is another matter entirely. An unemployed black male from Chicago's South Side explains, most of the time, the places be too far, and you need transportation, and I don't have none right now. If I had some, I'd probably be able to get one, a job. If I had a car and went way into the suburbs, because there ain't none in the city. Those who actually land jobs in the suburbs find it difficult to keep them without reliable, affordable transportation. Murray McNair, a 22-year-old African-American, returned to Newark, New Jersey after being locked up for drug offenses. He shares a small apartment with his pregnant girlfriend, his sister, and her two children. Through a federally funded job training program operated by Goodwill Institutes, or Industries, McNair found a $9 an hour job at a warehouse 20 miles, two buses and a taxi ride away. I know it's going to be tough, he told a New York Times reporter, but I can't be thinking about myself anymore. The odds of McNair or any ex-offender in a similar situation succeeding under these circumstances are small. If you make $9 per hour but spend $20 or more getting to and from work every day, how do you manage to pay rent, buy food, and help support yourself and a growing family? An unemployed 36-year-old black man quit his suburban job because of the transportation problem. I was spending more money getting to work than I earned working. The Black Box Black ex-offenders are the most severely disadvantaged applicants in the modern job market. While all job applicants, regardless of race, are harmed by a criminal record, the harm is not equally felt. Not only are African Americans far more likely to be labeled criminals, they're also more strongly affected by the stigma of a criminal record. Black men convicted of felonies are the least likely to receive job offers of any demographic group, and suburban employers are the most unwilling to hire them. Sociologist Diva Pager explains that those sent to prison are institutionally branded as a particular class of individuals, with major implications for their place and status in society. The negative credential associated with a criminal record represents a unique mechanism of state-sponsored stratification. 
As Pager puts it, it is the state that certifies particular individuals in ways that qualify them for discrimination or social exclusion. The official status of this negative credential differentiates it from other sources of social stigma, offering legitimacy to its use as a basis for discrimination. Four decades ago, employers were free to discriminate explicitly on the basis of race. Today, employers feel free to discriminate against those who bear the prison label, i.e. those labeled criminals by the state. The result is a system of stratification based on the official certification of individual character and competence, a form of branding by the government. Given the incredibly high level of discrimination suffered by black men in the job market and the structural barriers to employment in the new economy, it should come as no surprise that a huge percentage of African-American men are unemployed. Nearly one-third of young black men in the United States today are out of work. The jobless rate for young black male dropouts, including those incarcerated, is a staggering 65%. In an effort to address the rampant joblessness among black men labeled criminals, a growing number of advocates in recent years have launched Ban the Box campaigns. These campaigns have been successful in cities like San Francisco, where All of Us or None, a nonprofit grassroots organization dedicated to eliminating discrimination against ex-offenders, persuaded the San Francisco Board of Supervisors to approve a resolution designed to eliminate hiring discrimination against people with criminal records. San Francisco's new policy, which took effect in June 2006, seeks to prevent discrimination on the basis of a criminal record by removing the criminal history box from the initial application. An individual's past convictions will still be considered, but not until later in the hiring process, when the applicant has been identified as a serious candidate for the position. The only exception is for those jobs which state or local laws expressly bar people with certain specific convictions from employment. These applicants will still be required to submit conviction history information at the beginning of their hiring process. However, Unlike a similar ordinance adopted in Boston, San Francisco's policy applies only to public employment, not private vendors that do business with the city or county of San Francisco. While these grassroots initiatives and policy proposals are major achievements, they raise questions about how best to address the complex and interlocking forms of discrimination experienced by black ex-offenders. Some scholars believe, based on the available data, that black males may suffer more discrimination, not less, when specific criminal history information is not available. Because the association of race and criminality is so pervasive, employers may use less accurate and discriminatory methods to screen out those perceived as likely criminals. Popular but misguided proxies for criminality, such as race, receipt of public assistance, low educational attainment, and gaps in work history, could be used by employers when no box is available on the application form to identify criminals. This concern is supported by ethnographic work, suggesting that employers have fears of violence by black men relative to other groups of applicants, and act on those fears when making hiring decisions. Without disconfirming information in the job application itself, employers may, consciously or unconsciously, treat all black men as though they have a criminal record, effectively putting all or most of them in the same position as black ex-offenders. This research suggests that banning the box is not enough. We must also get rid of the mindset that puts black men in the box. Debtor's Prison The lucky few who land a decent job, one that pays a living wage and is in reasonable proximity to their residence, often discover that the system is structured in such a way that they still cannot survive in the mainstream legal economy. Upon release from prison, ex-offenders are typically saddled with large debts, financial shackles that hobble them as they struggle to build a new life. 
In this system of control, like the one that prevailed during Jim Crow, one's debt to society often reflects the cost of imprisonment. Throughout the United States, newly released prisoners are required to make payments to a host of agencies, including probation departments, courts, and child support enforcement offices. In some jurisdictions, ex-offenders are billed for drug testing and even for the drug treatment they are supposed to receive as a condition of parole. These fees, costs, and fines are generally quite new, created by law within the past 20 years, and are associated with a wide range of offenses. Every state has its own rules and regulations governing their imposition. Examples of pre-conviction service fees imposed throughout the United States today include jail book-in fees levied at the time of arrest, jail per diems assessed to cover the cost of pre-trial detention, public defender application fees charged when someone applies for court-appointed counsel, and the bail investigation fee imposed when the court determines the likelihood of the accused appearing at trial. Post-conviction fees include pre-sentence report fees, public defender recoupment fees, and fees levied on convicted persons placed in a residential or work release program. Upon release, even more fees may attach, including parole or probation service fees. Such fees are typically charged on a monthly basis during the period of supervision. In Ohio, for example, a court can order probationers to pay a $50 monthly supervision fee as a condition of probation. Failure to pay may warrant additional community control sanctions or a modification in the offender's sentence. Two-thirds of people detained in jails report annual incomes under $12,000 prior to arrest. Predictably, most ex-offenders find themselves unable to pay the many fees, costs, and fines associated with their imprisonment, as well as their child support debts, which continue to accumulate while a person is incarcerated. As a result, many ex-offenders have their paychecks garnished. Federal law provides that a child support enforcement officer can garnish up to 65% of an individual's wages for child support. On top of that, probation officers in most states can require that an individual dedicate 35% of his or her income toward the payment of fines, fees, surcharges, and restitution charged by numerous agencies. Accordingly, a former inmate living at or below the poverty level can be charged by four or five departments at once, at once and can be required to surrender 100% of his or her earnings. As a New York Times editorial soberly observed, people caught in this impossible predicament are less likely to seek regular employment, making them even more susceptible to criminal relapse. Whether or not ex-offenders make the rational choice to participate in the illegal economy, rather than have up to 100% of their wages garnished, they may still go back to prison for failure to meet the financial portion of their probation supervision requirements. One study of probation revocations found that 12% were due, at least in part, to a failure of probationers to pay their debts. Some ex-offenders are thrown back in prison simply because they have been unable, with no place to live and no decent job, to pay back thousands of dollars of prison-related fees, fines, and child support. Some offenders, like Lee Hurley, find themselves trapped by fees and fines in prison and find it nearly impossible to get out. Hurley was a prisoner held at the Gateway Diversion Center in Atlanta in 2006. She was imprisoned because she owed a $705 fine. As part of the diversion program, Hurley was permitted to work during the day and returned to the center at night. Five days a week, she worked full-time at a restaurant earning $6.50 an hour and, after taxes, net about $700 a month. Room and board at the diversion center was about $600, and her monthly transportation cost $52. Miscellaneous other expenses, including clothes, shoes, and personal items, such as toothpaste, quickly exhausted what was left. 
Hurley's attorney, decried the trap she was in. This is a situation where if this woman was able to write a check for the amount of the fine, she would be out of there. And because she can't, she's still in custody. It's as simple as that. Although she worked a full-time job while in custody, most of her income went to repay the diversion program, not the underlying fine that put her in custody in the first place. This harsh reality harks back to the days after the Civil War, when former slaves and their descendants were arrested for minor violations, slapped with heavy fines, and then imprisoned until they could pay their debts. The only means to pay off their debts was through labor on plantations and farms, known as convict leasing, or in prisons that had been converted to work farms. Paid next to nothing, convicts were effectively enslaved in perpetuity, as they were unable to earn enough to pay off their debts. Today, many inmates work in prison, typically earning far less than the minimum wage, often less than $3 an hour, sometimes as little as 25 cents. Their accounts are often charged for various expenses related to their incarceration, making it impossible for them to save the money that otherwise would allow them to pay off their debts or help them make a successful transition when released from prison. Prisoners are typically released with only the clothes on their backs and a pittance in gate money. Sometimes, the money is barely enough to cover the cost of a bus ticket back home. Let them eat cake. So here you are, a newly released prisoner, homeless, unemployed, and carrying a mountain of debt. How do you feed yourself? Care for your children? There's no clear answer to that question, but one thing is for sure. Do not count on the government for any help. Not only will you be denied housing, but you may well be denied food. Welfare reform legislation signed by President Bill Clinton in 1996 ended individual entitlements to welfare and provided states with block grants. The Temporary Assistance for Needy Family program imposes a five-year lifetime limit on benefits and requires welfare recipients, including those who have young children and lack child care, to work in order to receive benefits. In the abstract, a five-year limit may sound reasonable, but consider this. When one is labeled a criminal, forced to check the box on applications for employment and housing, and burdened by thousands of dollars in debt, it is possible that one will live on the brink of severe poverty for more than five years, and thus require food stamps for oneself and one's family. Until 1996, there was a basic understanding that poverty-stricken mothers raising children should be afforded some minimal level of assistance with food and shelter. The five-year limit on benefits, however, is not the law's worst feature. The law also requires that states permanently bar individuals with drug-related felony convictions from receiving federally funded public assistance. No exceptions are made to the felony drug ban. Accordingly, pregnant women, women raising young children, people in drug treatment or recovery, people suffering from HIV-AIDS are ineligible for food assistance for the rest of their lives, simply because they were once caught with drugs.